Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with David Sibbett, founder and CEO of the Grove Consultants International, a full service organization consulting firm in San Francisco that's been a leader in visual facilitation and strategy work. He's also a process designer who helps clients imagine design, facilitate, and document critical planning and change processes. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Visual Meetings, and its companions, Visual Teams, Visual Leaders, and Visual Consultant. Welcome to the show, David. Yes, thank you, Douglas. So, David, let's start off by hearing a little bit about how you got your start. How did you get into this work of visual meetings and visual leading? Mm-hmm. Well, I was working for a leadership development organization in San Francisco called the Coro Center for Public Affairs. And we were next door neighbors to a consulting firm called Interaction Associates, run by two architects who believed that the way architects work would be good for teachers and good for people in organizations. And they were inventing facilitation in the mid-70s, which at that time was not a common thing for businesses to do. It's a term that was more used for people doing personal development work in groups like national training labs or other people like that. And they were the beginning of what is now called design thinking. And I've always been able to draw and was trained as a reporter, uh, have masters in journalism, and I was interested in using the latest techniques in our leadership development work. So we began uh, mirroring the interaction method, which had a facilitator and a recorder who would then write on flip charts uh, what was going on. And they were getting a lot of success. And when we began using it in our seminars, um, we also experienced that it really shifted things. But um, I really uh, felt constrained by the little flip chart and began working with really big charts. And I can still remember one of our first meetings where we mapped the power structure in the city. And we had uh, 12 interns who were all in different placements. And so somebody was in the Department of Public Works, somebody was in police, somebody was in uh, the Planning Commission. And I started drawing little boxes of different sizes and put ones inside others that, in fact, were inside 
other organizations. And the end of about three hours, we had a whole wall full of a diagram with marks of where the interns were and lots of lines about how they perceived people communicating. And one of the things that I realized is we've gone right past the bio break. We've gone for three straight hours, not a wow. drop of interest. And I just kept going. And for about five years, experimented with all the ways you could use visualization and recording to amplify people's learning. So it was an action learning type curriculum that we were running at Coro. And um, after about five years of that work, uh, people found out I was doing this. And I remember Stanford Research Institute offered me what at the time seemed like a whole lot of money to go and spend one day recording for them in Sacramento on a project. And I began doing the math. Um, Coro was a, a nonprofit and I was I had a couple kids. And I decided to strike out on my own and form my own consulting firm in 1977. And was that when The Grove was started? Yeah, we didn't call ourselves The Grove. I called myself Sibbett & Associates, which is fairly typical of people who start out independently. And I incorporated as, the, as a company in 1988, a little bit later. I discovered about three years in who my clients really were. I initially thought organizations would want to do this, but they didn't know about it. They didn't know anything about it. So how can you want something you don't know about? And I started running workshops on group graphics is what we called it at the time. And uh, as a way of marketing, really getting the, the word out and a strategy consultant from Vancouver showed up at one. And he said, would you come up to Vancouver and, and run this meeting for me? You know, I'll set it up so that if the meeting doesn't work, no problem. I won't get in trouble or anything. You just won't come back. But if it works, I will be differentiated from every other strategy consultant up here. And he used to be somebody who worked at a big strategy firm and he was good enough to be on his own. So I went up and did the meeting with him and we worked together for four or five years all across Canada with uh, big conglomerates and other uh, city of uh, British government, British Columbia and the city of Vancouver. And I realized that my real clients were strategy consultants who wanted mm. to look different. And so within about six months, I had five clients, all of whom were real good at getting work. And so they would run the client, I would run the meetings. And it was sort of a sea captain to harbor pilot arrangement. And in those eight years, I learned strategy from people who were by doing it, basically. Yeah, you had a front row seat. That's cool. Yeah. And I worked with Apple. I worked with General Electric. I worked with General Mills. I was really working in very sophisticated meetings from then on. You know, you mentioned the, this notion of the group graphics, which you said you were calling it back then. And, and, and that, was, that was something, and, you know, when I've read your work, that's really jumped out to me is this notion of group graphics. And when I, when I see what is typically referred to as like graphic recording or graphic facilitation, you know, a lot of times it's relegated to someone over in the corner, just capturing stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and I've exactly. even heard like design thinking facilitators, you know, that, that I respect and are, are active members of our community to question, like, does that have value? 
like you know the, does someone creating the stuff have value and and i really was impressed by the your writing around the you know this notion that the group graphics get people involved well when we started i we called and I, I invented the name graphic facilitation which hadn't been used at all and i was totally working with the chart in front of the room as part of the conversation so we would have a u-shape with the fourth wall being the chart mm -hmm. and for this first thing i described doing the diagram of city hall I wanted to ask the questions, you know, I'd go and point at the chart and say, what goes here or what goes over here? Or should this be bigger or smaller? I was using the act of creating the visual as the active facilitation method. So we went on and did things like diagramming a political campaign, the history, telling a graphic history of it. Or we did sociograms of the group process, how we relate to each other and what the quality is. For these more complex graphics, I much prefer to be the facilitator running the chart. And that's what I call graphic facilitation. Mm. To me, that was not graphic recording, even though at times I would do recording, but I'd never do it on the side of the room yeah. uh, as, as an artifact. So it's been a little puzzling to see how, well, it's actually, it hasn't been so puzzling. I know why people like it, is people who do processes like to have artifacts like that that say, we did something. Yep. And so, in many cases, I'm not sure whether these artifacts correlate with something really happening or not. I mean, they, they correlate with a, uh, a good listener who can draw and illustrate well, creating a uh, visually interesting memory. But most of the work that I was doing for strategy involved the management teams really making their thinking explicit and, you know, papering as many as three or four walls of a conference room over the course of a day or two and really getting to a, what I would think of as a very sophisticated level of systems thinking about their business. Mm. In fact, I've, I've concluded after doing this for so many years and also studying systems thinking and many of these other methods that at the core of anybody who says, let's think systemically about something, which means you're, you're talking about thinking about how parts connect and how they connect dynamically and how they connect structurally. You cannot do that without making a display somewhere. Yeah, it's a model. How can you make a model without a visual? <laughs> yeah, it, the display is either between your ears or it's explicit on the wall. So visualizing is group systems thinking. But I realized early people don't respond to that kind of language. So I call it big picture thinking. Mm. You know, people want to do big picture thinking. And you don't have to be a student in systems thinking to look at several hours of conversation and begin making connections and seeing this fits with that or this doesn't fit here, or this doesn't fit there. And part of the art of it is to really be disciplined about having the marker be democratic and record everything that people are saying. So the graphic facilitation discipline is to be extremely clear about the filter you're using. Mm. Like we are right now going to do a flowchart. Right now we're doing a roadmap. Right now we're doing a matrix. Right now we're doing a cluster diagram. And the reasons we're using that chart are the following reasons. 
So early on, uh, we articulated a group graphics keyboard, which are the seven archetypal frameworks you ever use, and what the powers and limitations of each are, so that the facilitator can explain to a group why they're choosing a particular way of visualizing and how the group can work with it. And then basically inviting the group to co-create these. We went on in the 90s when we were doing a lot of strategy work during the whole buildup of the internet of creating graphic uh, templates we call graphic guides, which are the generic repeating frameworks that we use all the time. And we found we could give these to breakout groups in a big meeting and without facilitators being trained, ask them to have a discussion filling out this framework and we get many of the same results. So I agree with you. I agree with you, Douglas, about the the puzzles that people have about this stuff on the side. Yeah, it's like to your point about the, the market being democratic, if it's happening off to the side, it's so hard to validate your filter if you're not the one that's having the, the dialogue. Because exactly. quite often I'm like, is it okay if I capture it this way? So then I'm validating that I heard the yeah. right thing and that it's flowing out correctly. Because if there's anything translating, if my arm is doing some translation, it ain't what they said. When when we train facilitators, and we do, Grove is, has been active in training people since the first workshop that I ever ran in 1980. We say, look, you know, one of the things to get is that you really can't fail with this method if you really listen to people and understand what's happening when people are looking at a chart. Mm. So if people speak and then they see you write something down, if you've been listening responsively and get the key words that they think are the key words, and often you can get that through the tone of voice people have, and if you illustrate an image that they're actually describing, in their mind, not imposing an image, but just reflecting back maybe uh, a sketch of what they were trying to say. People love it. Yeah. People absolutely go crazy being listened to. On the other hand, if you're a little bit off and don't quite get it, what do you think a person is going to do looking at that chart? They're probably going to want to correct it. Mm -hmm. And if you learn how to accept the corrections like a Christmas present, they love you because everybody likes to feel smarter than the facilitator. So you win when you get it right. And if you handle it right, you win when you get it not correct. And so this has gone on. We, we do a lot of um, what we call story mapping at the Grove, where we actually know that leaders need a common image to explain what they're doing with strategy. So we will create a large mural that can be printed out on big plotters or used online that has all the information that they want to convey about a strategy, usually embedded in a graphic metaphor that is, you know, appropriate for what they're talking about. And the first drafts of these are always wrong. Mm. And what happens is it stirs up an immense amount of conversation in the company. So this thing circulates around, they go, oh, no, that should be this. No, yeah, we got to add this. So these, these vision maps, these story maps, go through as many as a dozen revisions before they're agreed on. I, I, we did one for Autodesk recently, and that was one image that was their entire strategy. And it had maybe 20 images on it and a whole lot of labels and words. 
every single word and every image had been gone over and gone over and gone over and gone over by their management teams and their key managers to the point where they all knew the story. And it, it's turned out to be uh, not just in a meeting, but over the course of several meetings, uh, a way to align people is by having them co-create an image. And again, the secret sauce is knowing how to deal with the fact that first drafts are not right. Yes, 100%. And I, you know, I, one of my favorite tricks is actually showing up with a crummy first draft based on some initial stuff I've heard and be yeah. like, and actually show up and say, I know this is wrong, but I just thought it'd be fun to react to something. So that yeah. way we don't have that awkward, like, okay, where do we start? <laughs> well, that's the secret of design thinking too, is doing, doing multiple scenarios, doing multiple takes on what it is that you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the, the group graphics keyboard. And, and so I wanted to come back to that and just a, kudos to you for the kind of codifying that for two reasons. There's two things I really liked about it when I first saw it. One is that it really distilled down these categories nicely and provided the why behind them. Because yeah. so often, I think, facil especially inexperienced facilitators will like learn a tool, like leaning on the structure or the methods, you know, because, you know, they're green and, and they don't have that clear understanding of the why. And if you don't share the why with people, it's really hard for them to come along with you. Yeah. So articulating the why on these, it's so clearly and, and it's simple. Uh, I think that's brilliant. And also, I love the mandala. It's maybe the first time <laughs> I'd seen that specifically. And this notion that it's a way of its purpose, its why is to demonstrate unity or depict unity. I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah, that's a Sanskrit word, by the way, that mm. means archetype. And the circle is the most common archetype. I mean, it's a universal symbol of unity. So we chose that word for that particular format of everything in a circle. But, you know, in learning that, I ran into a teacher, Arthur M. Young, who had a theory of process in 1976, who was really working to reconnect physics and metaphysics in one system. And his insight was that what makes the world unified, what, what connects one discipline with another or one thing with another, isn't the structure and the look of it, but the way it moves, the process. So he called it the theory of process. So I began looking at graphics as processes, hmm. not as artifacts. And then Later, I was asked to write an article for an educational journal, and I realized that these seven formats are actually different modes of thinking. They're different ways of working your awareness, uh, different processes. And I remembered back to Arthur talking about his system as being the yoga of thinking. So if you think of these different formats as different types of yogic asanas, you know, like postures. When you do a poster or a single image, all you're trying to do is focus, get people to focus on one thing. And so the way you learn to focus is you learn to differentiate what you're looking at from everything else. Hmm. And that is a mode of using your mind, just learning to focus. And then in drawing, how do you focus something visually where you have to do something that's different than everything else. Then there's listing. Well, what is listing? Listing is just flowing your attention. 
just moving at one thing after another, after another, after another, just flowing with the group. So when you're listing recording with a group, you are simply activating the flow of attention. And it doesn't invite making connections between those elements. It's just like one thing after the other. That's why it's used for brainstorming all the time. Now, if you shift to sticky notes that are spaced out, if you're looking at a bunch of different objects on a wall, three or four different sticky notes, there's no way that your brain isn't going to start comparing those. Mm. And you will start saying, hmm, I wonder if this, you know, is this should be near or whatever. And it, it basically is a process of activating thinking where listening doesn't really activate thinking. It, it's more tapping the flow that's activating the thinking is clustering. The minute you put something in a matrix where you have to cross categories, you've got one category, another one, and then you're trying to figure out what fits in that cell. You're now in an analytic process of forcing yourself to examine things out in the cells that you haven't thought about. Now, if you shift to diagramming, which is like a mind map or an org chart or something where you got all the pieces and they have the connections, unlike the clusters, when you have them, you start are now thinking more organically like a tree grows. And these things, the process starts slow and then it grows and grows and grows and grows and there's no end to it. You can keep branching way out into the little things. Now, if you take that same format, any one of those first five, and you layer on a graphic analogy, an analogy would be graphically pointing at something people already know. So I'll, on a big chart, draw an arc of a horizon and a few little squiggles representing China, Europe, and the U.S. It doesn't have to be hardly any detail. And if I put a little blue in there, bang, people are looking at the earth. Mm. Why? Because they've seen tons of photographs of the arc of the horizon, you know, and all that kind of thing. So this analogy, the graphic analogy, brings it to life. So if I put a little roadmap, which is like a, a diagram of, you know, action over time, on top of uh, a horizon like that, where people are thinking about the whole earth, that's a different kind of a process than just doing a flat diagram where the content is in linked boxes. There's a quote from your book that said that people are more engaged when the content is more suggestive. So that arc, the squiggles, they're suggestive. They're not yeah. like, you know, this flat linear line with like little compartments. That's that's very like mathematical and, you know, containerized. It's not suggestive and, you know, it doesn't lead to more thought. Well, this kind of thing has really animated the growth, particularly around our story maps, is finding the exactly correct metaphor mm. that people can kind of enter into. But that's also turns out that metaphors are what you can record visually. So if somebody's using a metaphor, you can often draw a picture of it. So that has taken me deeply into thinking about and looking at how do we structure our understanding of complicated things. And a lot of the thinking is metaphoric. And I was reinforced by that by a Harvard Business School article on strategy thinking. And they said uh, they'd done some research and they said like 80, 85% of strategy thinking is analogy. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we be like Amazon? How can we be like Southwest Airlines? 
How can we be like? And then people compare what they're doing to something they know about. That's analogous thinking. So most strategy work is actually analogic thinking, not analytic thinking. Mm, that's fascinating. You know, it reminds me of clean language. Have you seen that work at all? I've heard a little bit about it, yeah. Yeah. So this Same idea more. that, well, well, you know, this notion that meta, we use metaphor a ton, but it can be a source of malalignment. Absolutely. Because if I say it needs to be magical and we draw some magic, like, you know, icon or something, but then someone yep. else is thinking, defining magical in a different way, then we're in trouble. And so yep. clean language is a set of questions to help us digest like what they mean by magical. Well, what kind of magic? Exactly. That's a very powerful question. <laughs> oh boy. They, it, metaphors really do cut two ways. They, they illuminate something and they blindside you. Mm-hmm. So if you, you were asking me what I'm really interested in right, right now, I'm very interested in where our culture as a whole is blindsided. Where are we trapped in a mental model that is not serving us? And I came across a book that is just fabulous called The Future We Choose Mm. by Christiana Figuera. And she was the person who was asked by the United Nations to run the Paris Accord. After the catastrophic uh, climate thing in Denmark, they went and, and did the Paris Accord. And she's basically laying out the, the dim picture that we all see every day in the news about global warming and what happens if it goes up 3% and all the migration that's occurring and, you know, go on and on. Everybody knows the news now. But she says, and you've got to realize the next decade is the pivot. She says, really, you don't have to be submerged by the negative news because there's another choice. And the other choice is to shift your mindset. Now, this gets us to, I mean, metaphor and mindset are really close cousins. So she suggests several mindsets that actually would serve us heading forward in the future. And... One of them is the mindset of stubborn optimism, which is actually (laughs) holding the hope that things, we will figure this out. We will work it out. The second is endless abundance. Now, this one's the tricky one. There's a mindset of scarcity that drives the market economy and the thinking, if you don't get yours, you're not going to get it. Mm. You know, that there's not enough for everybody Mm -hmm. so that you've got to build your gated community. You've got to build your gated business. uh, You've got to seal things up. You've got to own your intellectual property. You can't be open source. This is all derived from the idea of scarcity. She says that in the energy field, it's just not true. There is plenty of solar energy. There's plenty of wind energy. There's all kinds of tidal energy. We just haven't focused on utilizing and capturing it at a systemic level. You know, we've gotten into this, you know, we're going to dig up our pile of coal and burn it. We're going to dig up our oil and own it. So this mindset of scarcity is driving a lot of the dysfunction. And if you have a mindset of endless abundance... Like, is it, are you better off with a whole lot of material goods or are you better off with really rich friends that love you and support you, you know, when you get ill or whatever? I mean, what is it that is gives quality to life? 
Mm. So she talks about those, but then she talks about the third one, which is radical regeneration. Mm. That we need to focus on not depleting things and regenerating things that are depleted. So if you start looking around at what's depleted by the pandemic, what's been depleted by global warming, and then you think, oh, I'm going to focus on radical regeneration. What is it that people need right now? Well, I believe that there are a whole bunch of entrepreneurs who are being hopeful. They think there's plenty of resource and they're going into regenerating things. Here's one example is they just announced Mayor Breed in San Francisco, that they're going to allow parklets to continue. These little restaurant extensions. So here's a total emergency response to the pandemic. But it turns out that these parklets make neighborhoods much more interesting. And it's fun to eat outside when you can. It's actually kind of European. And it's regenerating all kinds of areas of the city. And they're saying yes to it. Now, who would have thought that parklets would come out of this catastrophe. So I'm fascinated with trying to find more examples of that, you know, where people are being optimistic, they're thinking there are plenty of resources, and they're just being hard-ass regeneratives. <laughs> you know, I, I really love that radical regeneration because it reframes this idea of sustainability because I think sustainability has become such a buzzword I'm not even sure people know what it means as they're saying it anymore. Yeah. So taking stock of the fact that, wait, radical regeneration, we're, we're going to go into extreme reuse and extreme ability to like actually generate more, you know, it's just like hyperabundance. Yes. I love it. Yes. It's great. Yeah. And I just, that was a total accident. Uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to travel to, Germany and Majorca recently. And one of the beautiful things about being in Majorca is nobody was traveling yet. Mm. <laughs> we were the only people staying at this very, very neat 15th century villa in the middle of the island that could have held 30 or 40 people, and we were the only people. Oh, wow. But it was in the bookstore at Frankfurt when I came back. And so these accidents happen where when you're, when you're receptive stuff comes out. So, you know, yes. back to the gr group graphics. One of the things that I love about working this way, and I hope that it's still unknown enough that it works this way, is that destabilizes all the habituation that we have. You know, if there's a big chart in the room that is reflecting what everybody's thinking, nobody really knows how to game that very effectively. Mm. I mean, you've got to actually listen to each other. And as this thing develops, even the facilitator doesn't know where it's going. And what happens is that parklets of thinking erupt out of the meeting. Yeah, you know, I think in a way it's similar to Peter Drucker's calendar review. You know, he would ask a, an executive, what, what's your priority right now? And then they go look at the executive's calendar and, and then say, well, why am I not seeing your priority in your calendar, you know, or it's 10%. So you imagine out of a visual meeting, if there's direct evidence, whether or not the company's living the priority or not. Yeah. The, one of the most effective activities as a graphic facilitator is doing a graphic history of a group mm. or the, or the 
whatever. I remember doing the history of Chicago one time with 60 people. They were standing on their chairs yelling and screaming. It was amazing. It was like an hour and a half melee. And the, the picture itself ends up being what I kind of call a spaghetti drawing. I mean, it starts clean sheet of paper and a timeline. And then you ask people, you know, what are the huge events that everybody knows about, like the earthquake events and things? Mm. Uh, so you put in a couple of memory benchmarks on, on the thing, and then people start telling stories. So we'll do things, most of the time, start strategy work with a, with a storytelling and get everybody to sign in to a timeline of when they joined the organization. Then you have the old people tell the story what it was like when they joined. And then the next cohort, what was it like when you joined? And then the next cohort, what was it like? By the end of that, you have disturbed every single person's idea of what the heck was going on because people's story about the organization is formed kind of when they joined and they don't incorporate deeply the point of view of say the new people the millennials or whoever the new people are so using metaphor again i think of these history telling sessions as a type of uh, story composting you're you're tearing apart the old story but not by attacking it but by just adding so much to it Mm. that everybody's little suboptimal story or, or a simple story starts breaking down. And then out of that breakdown, where you still have all the information up there, people can craft a new story that's more inclusive. Yeah, it reminds me of EcoCycle mm -hmm. and um, liberating structures. This notion of like, you know, it's built, the information's building, and then it's like, it's, and then, okay, we got to creatively destruct some stuff. And then out of that detritus, something new grows and emerges. Absolutely. That's so good. So yeah. um, it also reminds me of from visual meetings, the story you told about, I think it was the Apple leadership um, expedition, I think you called it, which is really cool. But this notion of, um, what was it? The peaks and valleys of your career. It's like just yeah. these kind of visual, it's like even the prompt is visual, you know, like not where's your career going. It's like, what are the peaks and valleys? Like really get visual on this like metaphor of like how they communicate those stories. That metaphor really helped me out a couple of years later when I was working with Hewlett Packard and their laser jet division was charged with coming up with the next several billion dollar businesses by the very successful management team at that time in the company. They were making the most money for the company. And these people were really petrified with this project they've been asked to do because before task groups like this had gone in front of the top management and then been torn apart because the management wanted to show they were smarter than the than the task force. And so I had them tell a story about the HP division, and it turned out that one of the reasons that they ended up defying corporate policy and hooking their new inkjet printer up to every computer rather than just HP computers was that they'd had a huge failure two years before, a huge belly flop. And the whole company was just not going to go there again. And so they ran the numbers and everything. This is never going to work if we just hook up to HP computers. And so the, the valley that they went through gave them the guts to go through a peak. Mm. And I've since kind of seen that pattern. I, I grew up in uh, the High Sierras in Bishop, California. And if you think about it, if, a peak in a valley is the same concept. It's just pointing at different parts of one thing. 
I mean, you don't think of a peak unless there's a lower part. And the lower part isn't lower except in relation to the peak. And so the same thing's true in our lives. Development tends to go through periods of contraction and expansion. You know, failure and success. Uh, you know, in between periods. Like right now, my uh, wife is working on an archetype of change called the Liminal Pathways Framework. And what she's studied is how indigenous people have dealt with change since the beginning of time. And what they know is that the letting go side of change doesn't just go to the new side of change. You go through a period of unknowing. There's a technical term for it. It's a liminal phase. You go through this ambiguous time where you don't know who you are, you don't know what you're doing, uh, you're confused. And in traditional ceremony, those times are supported by the ritual guides and the ceremonialists and everything to keep people in the hothouse, in the crucible of their change, long enough that one of these parklets comes up, one of these new things or they get a message from the divine or something comes in. Well, think of the number of people right now that are in total limbo, mm. that are in between what they were and what they're going to be. And they don't know yet that it's vast. And I think one of the roles now, one of the things I'm working on is how as a facilitator and a consultant, can I convince uh, leaders and other people that you can design containers for this sort of in-betweenness and ambiguity? And actually, there's a tremendous amount of value in staying confused longer mm. and not trying to make decisions and force it through mentally. That sometimes you really have to sit and stew on something for, for the juices to mix and cook and something delicious to come out. Notice the metaphor. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of like uh, groups that like want to open and, and just immediately close without exploring. There's no opportunity for the collisions, you yeah. know, and there's the, the recombinant stuff doesn't happen. And it's yeah. the same thing internally as you're in that state. Let it play its course. Yeah. Well, we've really been successful at the Grove in, in teaching people visual facilitation, team performance, strategy work, you know, know how to train all that and do all that. And it's all in the area of known technique and really good value. But I've just been drawn heavily, and the growth has too, into this social change side is how we're going to deal with these crises. So we started a nonprofit about five years ago called the Global Learning and Exchange Network. And you can get to it through glencommunity.com. And it's a group of consultants now, about 70 or 80 of us, including a lot of Europeans and some people in Asia, asking really basic questions about what, what's the new kind of thinking we need? What are at the edges of our clarity? How can we uh, embrace, you know, struggling and inquiry? You know, uh, one of the thoughts we had is how could we make inquiry on a group basis as interesting as a TED talk? You know, instead of here's an expert, here's the answer. No, here's the question and we're going to struggle with it. Well, it, it, it doesn't package the same way, but we're 
we're spending a lot of time asking really basic stuff. And it's gotten me pretty excited as I begin to see all the different things people are coming up with. You were telling me a little bit about this work in the pre-show chat, and I was really fascinated about, uh, or, or the thing that, that really drew me in was this, I would say, impedance mismatch or, or this kind of friction between this need or urge to address the symptoms or the short term or the urgent stuff, whereas yeah. there's, there's looming big kind of disaster consequence kind of important stuff that can easily get ignored. And, um, you know, that's happening at a, I would say a global level. And then you're, you're also working at a, a local state level around the wildfires on the same issue. And I think, I think that that phenomenon happens inside companies. It happens uh, in communities. It happens globally, but uh, it's something we humans have to pay real close attention to. And I think facilitators have a, a duty when they're in sessions with teams to help them like recognize that and get out of that way of thinking. Oh, I know. And it's, it's, um, yeah, there's so many echoes of that showing up. I mean, of course, Covey pointed this out in seven habits quite dramatically that the urgent trumps the important all the time, but it's, it's also happening in politics in a scary kind of way is that when people are really scared, this, the easy thing is to go and blame somebody. And I think people are really at a very deep level, very scared about what's happening with global mm -hmm. warming and the economy and all the disruption that's going on. They're really scared. The easy way is to do that. The more challenging way is to like think about what's the real value of diversity. So you have tons of people who are in the innovation business, creativity, design thinking business who know that diverse inputs in, in a meeting or a design process are going to give you a better result. Also, ecologists know that in an ecosystem, a diversity of connections between different species actually results in a stronger ecosystem. There's just tons of evidence for that. But the question then becomes, what does it take to form a relationship across barriers? Well, it takes time. It takes, you know, have you had dinner with somebody before? You, you know, are you willing to read some things that they were reading? Are you willing to go out of your way to stretch yourself a little bit beyond your certainty? So this short-term, long-term thing shows up dramatically in that. And then it's exacerbated by this attention economy stuff. Mm. They are reinforcing short cycle, urgent, you know, get rid of the little dots on your iPhone, the real red dots. <laughs> yeah. You know, read all your Facebook WeChats or whatever. Uh, get in there and just stay busy with social media. This is like short-termitis on steroids. And, uh, you know, if you read the, the stuff on creativity and everything uh, and neuropsychology, it's becoming clear that one of the best things for really good thinking is to go take a walk. <laughs> Mm. You know, actually have some some breaks, uh, not push so hard, have longer meetings. You know, now with Zoom, everybody wants to cram everything into a couple hours. Uh, so the consequences of the short term thinking are, are, are going to show up. They show up in a lot of false starts, a lot of activity, a lot of burnout. And, you know, you're seeing a big spike of mental health problems now in young people who are 
looking at this world and I saying, whoa, where am I in this? Mm. So the paradox is that the pandemic has allowed a lot of people to experience what it's like to slow down and be at home and do what you want when you want. And a lot of people don't want to go back to that, you know, regimented, you know, cubicle kind of world. So I think this big in-betweenness that we're going on is, is a tremendous potential resource if we can hold it that way and cultivate and nurture the new things that are hopeful and regenerative and abundance-oriented. I'm just... Uh, so I'm getting up every morning pretty excited about working on stuff. There's, there's plenty of opportunity for being a facilitator. I think there's even more opportunity. The more complex the world gets and the more automated things get too, uh, the more we have to lean into our humanity. Yeah, and again, the mountain valley thing, for people to think that tech is wrong is sort of to split the mountain and the valley. I mean, look, we couldn't be having this podcast now without the technology. I couldn't be doing all the, the virtual drawing that I'm doing now. I'm doing a lot of my design work online. And I find that one-on-ones where you're looking at another person's face as big as if they're across the table. And if you take enough time for it, you can form really close connections through video conferencing. Uh, and you can do it globally. That's what we're finding with the Glen, our Global Learning Exchange Network, is that some of our relationships with some of the European people are as close as anybody that we can actually invite over to dinner regularly. So it's not like, you know, because tech's driving the attention economy, therefore all tech is bad. You know, that's another example of sort of simplistic thinking. Mm, absolutely. Well, you know, we're running low on time. And so I want to be mindful of that and just um, give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with just a final thought, like what would you like to, to leave them with? Well, I have, a, I have a quote in my studio from Buckminster Fuller, and it's inside one of these little models that I put together of a geodesic sphere. And it said, you, you can't change humanity where it is. You can't change man where he is. What you can do is go into the outlaw area and make it so interesting that they eventually copy you. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the parallel quote I have along with it is, uh, the function of prophecy is not so much to foretell the future as to shape it. And so I'm prophesying a future <laughs> of young people who are not burdened by history and are busy making it up with what they've got right now. As is always the case, spring comes, my garden grows stuff, the deer eat things and they grow back. So I'm very hopeful when I talk to some of the younger people who are very aware of a lot of these things and are not burdened by the history, the legacy stuff. But I'm also hopeful about the older people who've gotten cracked open by the pandemic and aren't so confident anymore <laughs> and are asking basic questions. So I'm hoping that people realize there are choices. I, I really hope that people realize they can 
connect in. Our website on the Glen, glencommunity.org, is open to anybody to go look. And thegrove.com is also full of really useful tools and trainings. In fact, I'm going to be going back and doing two things. I'm going to go back and teach the fundamentals of graphic facilitation, again, in part, Douglas, because of this confusion about what it is and what it could be. And um, this is our beginning course. And I'm also going to be launching a year-long master's program for people who really want to learn how to be visual consultants and have a fabulous life. I mean, I can't imagine having a more interesting professional career than I've had. I've gotten to all over the world, all kinds of organizations, all different levels. People really like to be listened to and they really like support and thinking about complex things. And that's what my work is allowed. So thank you for inviting me on this podcast. Thanks for joining me. It was a pleasure chatting, David. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com